Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello, I'm Francesco, podcasting from the usual place, the cozy office of my company, Amethyx Technologies, where we use machine learning and artificial intelligence to empower people and organizations. Feel free, of course, to go on amethyx.com, A-M-E-T-H-I-X.com. There is a very interesting blog and a newsletter you can subscribe to. It's free of charge, and that's our best selection in artificial intelligence and machine learning. With this said, I welcome everybody to this episode in which I would like to talk about a new paradigm of learning, which initially can be found a bit blurry and not really different from many of the other methods that we know of, for example, supervised and unsupervised learning. The method is called self-supervised learning, and this is a method to learn general features usually for images and videos, but it can apply, of course, to other numerical types, from large-scale, unlabeled data without using human annotation. That's the definition that the authors give. So if you are thinking of unsupervised learning, well, then listen to this episode and think twice. The two widely known paradigms of learning in machine learning are supervised and unsupervised. I am pretty sure that everybody knows here what supervised and unsupervised means. I'll just explain for completeness. Supervised means that there are inputs and labels, both provided to the model by an annotator, a human, or another machine, another algorithm. But in fact, what I want to say is that there is an input and an output And what the network or the model has to do is tuning its parameters in order to create these associations and learn these associations between input and output. Now, of course, with supervised learning, it means that, you know, these inputs and outputs have to be available. And this means that we need to annotate our data beforehand, which sometimes might be quite expensive. And also, many other times, it would just be it would just be impossible. With unsupervised learning, there is no label, the so-called why or the response. So by the fact that there is no label, it means that, you know, the problem usually consists of assigning a label to any specific input X. And one typical example is the clustering algorithms or the family of clustering algorithms, which are indeed a classic for unsupervised learning. So given a set of images of cats, dogs, people, cars, etc., an unsupervised classifier will essentially assign one of the four labels or clusters to each input image without knowing what a cat or a dog is. In fact, the clustering algorithm doesn't care what a cat or a dog is from a semantics perspective. It just knows that a cat is not a dog and probably two cats should end up having the same label or the same group. In fact, unsupervised algorithms only have, as I said, knowledge of the distances between objects that belong to one class and objects of another class. So what is self-supervised learning? Well, in order to learn features from unlabeled data, a widely used solution is to propose a number of tasks for networks to solve before the main problem. 
I'm gonna be more precise here. Now these tasks are usually referred to as pretext tasks and their only purpose is to force the network to learn some internal pattern or feature in the input data. We have encountered such an approach in action in another episode of Data Science at Home when I discussed the capability of a network, of course a neural network, to predict the next word given a context of n previous words. If I remember well, it was uh, 20 context words and then the algorithm or the machine learning algorithm was predicting the 21st word. Now, with self-learning, there are in fact two tasks to be performed before learning for the actual problem. Each of these tasks has its own purpose, and the tasks are the pretext task and the downstream task. The pretext task are essentially pre-designed tasks for networks to solve and learn features by learning the objective functions of the task while the downstream tasks are applications that are used to evaluate the quality of the features learned with the pretext tasks. In general, human annotated labels are needed to solve downstream tasks, but sometimes such a task can be the same as the pretext task just without using any human annotated label. So to summarize, in a self-supervised learning, one usually refers to learning methods in which a neural network is explicitly trained with automatically generated labels. And the way such labels are obtained is via additional and relatively useless tasks called pretext tasks. Now, when I say useless, I refer to something like the next word predictor I, that I introduced in the previous episode. Probably one is not really interested in knowing the probability of the 21st word given the previous 20, but maybe one is interested in knowing what is the internal structure of paragraphs in a text, in a corpus, and so that's indeed the valuable information that we are interested in. So the network that learns to predict the 21st word is in fact also learning some additional features that might be used for other tasks, for example, paragraph classification or sentiment analysis or caption prediction if, for example, the text is paired with, with an image classification algorithm and so on. Now, I know that many of the listeners of this podcast are waiting for some formulas, but believe me, folks, speaking algebraic equations without a whiteboard is extremely painful for me. I do love whiteboards and uh, speaking equations is really something that I find extremely challenging. But in any case, I'll give it a try. So with supervised learning, what model simply does is to minimize a loss function. We have seen that a number of times in previous episodes and also on the blog there are a number of posts where we even went into the very technical details of function optimization. That is, given input x and labels y, what a supervised learning model does is minimizing the loss function, which is the difference between the predicted label and the true label whenever available. In a semi-supervised setting where there are input X, a few labels Y and a large number of unlabeled data, the training loss is usually defined with the traditional loss for all the inputs with a label and with a function that represents the relation between each unlabeled data with a labeled one. Such a function is usually task specific. So what's the learning loss for a self-supervised task? Well, given a set of n training data, the training loss function is defined as the difference between predicted pseudo-labels 
and true pseudo labels. <laughs> I know that speaking about true pseudo label is kind of weird, but in this case the distinction is a must. Since there are no real labels, some pseudo labels are automatically generated before proceeding with the main learning task. The problem is how to generate such labels, which brings us to the pretext tasks. So, the purpose of a pretext task is not to solve the main problem with a specific network and dataset, but indeed to force the network to learn something that is already encoded in the data. After all, we want to do this without human intervention, so all this information should already be encoded somewhere in the data. Of course, learning something one already knows about the dataset is kind of useless, you might think. And that's true, but the learning process gives the network a chance to explore hidden patterns and features that might come useful for other tasks. So the purpose of this process is to learn the geometry of the data, not to solve a trivial problem that is already known and encoded in the data. For example, specifically to computer vision and convolutional neural networks, some typical pretext tasks are image colorization, clustering, image in painting, or foreground object segmentation. Others are context similarity assessment and spatiotemporal context structure exploration. Think about having a video stream made of a sequence of images between, for example, 12 and 20 frames per second, which is quite realistic, by the way. Clearly, there is a context similarity in all consecutive frames, right? Such similarity decreases among frames that are more and more distant from each other. And so, such obvious property of video frames can be exploited by a neural network that is trained to predict the cluster of a set of images fed from a video stream. Now, a task that is very simple to perform just because we know there is such a similarity already, and we also know on which frame this similarity is higher. Now, the same applies to image segmentation. There are very mature algorithms out there to segment images. Implementing a network that predicts the known segments in a video frame is trivial, I'm sure, but it's still useful to learn all the other features that one doesn't know yet. Colorization is another used pretext task. Again, we know the color of a colorful video stream, but converting it to grayscale and then feeding a network with the input and labels, so XY pairs, where the targets are the colorful version of the grayscale input, will force the network to learn coloring patterns from a low-level or pixel representation to more and more abstract visual features. And so, a long enough training process will eventually learn that, for example, objects that look like a face should be pink or kind of pinkish or brown. And objects that are pretty flat, usually at the top of the frame, should probably be blue like the sky indeed. Setting up a pretext task is not enough, because so-called downstream tasks are necessary for evaluation. All the features learned with the pretext task should be validated on other tasks that are usually supervised methods. For example, image classification and segmentation, or object detection, are all tasks that will assess how good or bad these learned features are. Now, there are two major generation-based methods that have been widely used so far, 
specifically to image and computer vision, the technology of which has been reused or can be considered definitely for self-supervised learning. The two methods are autoencoders and GANs, which stands for Generative Adversarial Networks. While we covered both in previous episodes, let me just summarize them both here. So autoencoder is a model that essentially maps the input image to a lower dimensional space and reconstructs the original image from the compressed version of the, of the image itself. So in fact, it learns features from the input and tries to reconstruct the input again. As one can imagine, this is a completely unsupervised task as there are no labels and basically no human intervention is required, except of course, the one of probably cleaning and feeding the images in the first place. The second approach is the GANs, Generative Adversarial Networks, which is a type of deep generative model initially proposed by Goodfellow and extensively used for generating data. And that consists of two networks, in fact, which is a generator and a discriminator. Now those two networks compete against each other by generating better and better images and on the other side, discriminating the synthetic images from the real ones, better and better. And so they are called adversarial because they kind of fight against each other. And so the generator tries to generate more and more realistic images while the discriminator also improves in distinguishing what is real from what is synthetic. Clearly, both approaches can be used to learn features for a self-supervised learning task. In fact, both autoencoders and GANs would learn semantic features of images that can be used in a downstream task, for example, a classifier or an image captioning system, all tasks that are usually supervised and for which reliable features are required. So what's the best pretext task to use? Well, generally speaking, and also according to some important results in a survey that I will add to the show notes of this episode, the best pretext task is definitely clustering. Now, while we probably all know what clustering is, that is a method that relies on a distance metric that assigns images or inputs at a short distance to the same group and images at a larger distance to different groups. Well, for this particular task, it's not just clustering that we need, but something called deep clustering. That's the right method to go for. So deep cluster is a clustering method that jointly learns the parameter of a neural network and the cluster assignments of the resulting features. This method iteratively groups the features with an off-the-shelf clustering algorithm like k-means, for example, and then uses the subsequent assignments as supervision to update the weights of the network. So, in fact, that's a two-step process composed by feature extraction and parameter tuning via cluster estimation. That's super cool. Once the clusters have been assigned in unsupervised fashion, a convolutional neural network is able to learn the invariance within one class and, of course, the variance among different classes. In fact, all the clusters would be there. Basically, one is teaching the neural network what is already known via the clustering algorithm. Again, while this might sound useless, in fact, it is forcing the network to learn semantic features and the meaning of images. 
While there are many more creative tasks to learn semantics of images or video streams, which is nothing more than a set of still images and the temporal dimension, it is interesting to notice that using clustering as pretext task for self-supervised learning is really beneficial in all those cases in which there are few labeled data. It turns out that the performance of self-supervised learning methods is always better than the performance of the same model trained from scratch. Moreover, many self-supervised methods perform well with the features in the mid-hidden layers for architectures with at least five layers. For instance, it has been found that the features in the first and last layers are not that good for downstream tasks. In fact, the features from the mid-layers, for example, the third and the fourth in a five-layer network, seem to be much, much better. Now, one might think, why is that? Well, there might be a reason because shallow layers capture general low-level features, while deep layers capture pretext task-related features that are too specific. Remember, when you have a neural network with a number of layers, the first layers are learning, in fact, the very basic features. For example, for an image, they will just learn the correlations or the groupings between pixels. And then as you move towards the last layer, the features will be more and more abstract, more and more complex, until in the last layer, you will find features that are very much specific to the task that you are solving. Now, if you take all the layers in between, not the first, not the last, but just whatever is in between, you will find generic enough features that might be indeed generalized to different other tasks. And that's probably the reason why in a five-layer network, the third and the fourth layers contain features that are much better for general tasks. Definitely, we seem to be still quite far from completely unsupervised learning, but I have the feeling that we are slowly getting there and definitely self-supervised learning seems to be a promising approach that reuses many of the concepts that we have been polishing in the years. Concepts coming from simple methods like clustering and more sophisticated ones like autoencoders or GANs are paving the way to machine learning that is more and more automatic and less demanding on expensive labeled datasets across domains. I definitely hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to check the show notes of this episode and subscribe to our newsletter in which we collect the best findings in AI and machine learning on amethix.com. A-M-E-T-H-I-X.com. It's completely free of charge. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week. Ciao. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.